William McDonough is a globally recognized leader in sustainable design and development. An accomplished architect, designer, and author, he has written and lectured extensively on design as the first signal of human intention. Co-authoring Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, and The Upcycle, Beyond Sustainability. In 2019, Fortune Magazine named him number 24 of the world's 50 greatest leaders. Time has recognized him as a hero for the planet, noting, his utopianism is grounded in a unified philosophy that in demonstrable and practical ways is changing the design of the world. William McDonough, welcome to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. So tell us a little bit protocol and philosophy behind Cradle to Cradle. And how did you come to write it with Michael Rongart? And how have things changed since you originally published it in 2002? I was born in Tokyo. And I grew up mostly in Hong Kong and in the Puget Sound, Washington State. So as a child, I used to hear the farmers come to collect our sewage. And at, at night, and they would wake us up, and my mother would sing us back to sleep and telling stories about poop and honey wagons and the night soil. And I, I, it's so romantic when you're a little kid. You're three years old, and your mother's singing you songs in Japanese about poop. It's fantastic. So I always thought that the farms and the cities were one thing. So that that has held with me. I still do. So I see a sewage treatment plant and say, that's not a sewage treatment plant. That should be a fertilizer factory. You know, change our language, change the lenses we use to see things. It's actually nutrient management system on a technical level because there's phosphate in there. Why would we send ships to Algeria to get phosphate when it's right there in front of us, you see? So so that, so waste equals food. And my grandparents lived in a log cabin in the Puget Sound. My grandfather had been a lumberjack. So they lived in this beautiful old growth place in a log cabin. And they, my grandmother was a weaver and they composted and grew food and served neighbors. and took care of everything because they had been through the Second World War with rationing and also preserving, you know, cans and canning your own food really as well and using everything. So my life was started out with people being really careful about nutrient management and materials. And as I grew older and finally ended up in the States and so I, I started seeing people leaving the showers running after gym or just throwing stuff away all the time. And it didn't make sense to me because I didn't understand the concept of a way. And so a way had gone away as far as I could tell. So, so waste equals food. So then I won some competitions. As a, when I became an architect, I decided I would design buildings like trees because why, why not have buildings that could sequester carbon or fix nitrogen or work from the sun and export energy to neighbors, things like that. And so it worked on that. And one day I won a competition in Germany for a daycare center. And I was designing a building like a tree. So solar power and all this, but it would be operated by the children. So the German engineers said, no, no, we're in Frankfurt. They said, you can't have a building operated by children. I said, why not? Well, what if they get too hot? I said, well, then I'm going to close the shade. What if they don't close the shade? Well, they might open the window. What if they don't open the window? It's like, well, we had shutters in the top. They could turn a big red crank and close the shutters, let the sun in the winter, keep it out in the summer. And they said, yeah, but you can't do this. And then the teachers, excuse me, because I had all the other systems, I'm a professional. But they said, excuse me, you don't understand what it's like to work with the children. Our hardest job is to find things for the children to do. So the idea that they would wake up the building in the morning and follow the sun during the day and adapt the building to their purposes and comfort and grow food on the roof and have solar-powered laundry for the parents to wait in while they waited for the children. That is daycare for children. So... But while I was sitting there watching the engineers be instructed by the daycare teachers, I saw that the children were eating the building. Every little kid had their mouth 
on a piece of furniture or a toy or I don't know what. And I thought, I really need to, to learn ecotoxicology and find out what it is they're eating. So I went looking for an ecotoxicologist. And then I found Michael Bargas, who had been doing Greenpeace chemistry. And that's when the two of us got together a couple of years later. It was actually two years later. And, uh, and then we started working for 20 years. We worked on Cradle to Cradle together. Well, it's a, a beautiful friendship and I like how it, it all came together. And I just, it seems like a utopia. I would have loved to have had that as my, my preschool uh, or even, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it's beautiful. Well, you know, but then ordinary life hits, as we see, and Frankfurt had to stop all the daycare center projects because Germany reunited with the East. So all budgets moved East. So we never got to build it, but that's very normal in the world of architecture. I bet we only build a fifth of the buildings we conceive. Of course, you've got a great list of realized projects and we should say not, yeah. um, you know, you've done a number of university buildings as well that yeah. are really yeah. forward thinking. Uh, and uh, so the realized and unrealized projects, I want to yeah. go into a little while since some of your city projects, re, you know, okay. realized and unrealized, because I know that, that it's an undertaking yeah. to dream them, to get the funding, to get the people behind is another Um we're living the center of the city. We hear a lot about creating smart cities, smart buildings, but really people I find have little idea what their future is going to look like. If you ask them uh, when we need to redesign all our systems, you know, uh, housing, transport, climate, education, you know, the heat waves, the storms. So what do you envisage for our cities? Uh, you know, describe some of the rapid transition and planning and adaptation efforts that need to take place. And I know you've really given this a lot of thought um, in terms of new cities and then also adapting some of our older cities? I like starting with fundamentals. So, and I love fractals. I love the discovery of the fractal in mathematics was relatively recent, but it's the mathematics of growth. And when we look at mathematics before, we realized we could do linear, we could do geometric, arithmetic, and so on, but we didn't do the mathematics of growth, right? Until we saw the fractal. And so once you see that, then you realize like Murray Gell-Mann who discovered the quark and then went on to do complexity theory and chaos theory and the butterfly effect, great physicist. Um, he, he said after he won the Nobel Prize that we have discovered something phenomenal in theoretical physics, which is that the more and more beautiful a mathematical formula begins to appear, the more and more likely it is true. Wow. So this is truth in number and truth in beauty. This is Aristotle meets his teacher, Plato. So, so for me, when I look at these things, the idea that we could be self-similar at every scale is very interesting. That's why with Cradle to Cradle, we design at the level of molecules, buildings, regions, planet. It's all one thing. And so even E equals MC squared, I think, is a fractal because it's self-similar at every scale. It's, it's reduced to that wisdom. So it's not just smart, it's wise. So when I hear smart city, I think to myself, wise city. Because just being smart can be a mechanical exercise with artificial intelligence and machine learning, but it's artificial intelligence, right? It's data. Where for us, cities actually have meaning. Life has meaning, not just dimension. So, so I like the idea of wise cities. So a wise city wouldn't just reduce its carbon emissions. It would find out, let's grow food. Let's reuse our phosphate. Let's uh, you know, shade ourselves. Let's uh, share the abundance of, of healthy places. So. It becomes a, just a different model, which is based on nature and it's fractal. So it's like the tree. I design buildings like trees because, you know, humans need to be quite humble, especially designers, because let's face it, it took 5,000 years to put wheels on our luggage. We went to the moon before we had wheels on our luggage. Think about that. 
It took another 20 years to put four wheels on our luggage. There we are. So it's amazing. And and so learning to have building that could make oxygen and sequester carbon and share energy with its neighbors and produce soil and bird song and uh, delightful microclimates. And it's a tree and make oxygen. Think about that. But it also can self-replicate, which is truly astonishing. So I've never been able to design a building that knows how to do that. But I can go after all the rest of them. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it's uh, it's really about self-similarity similarity at all scales. So let's take all the roof surfaces and do optimizations. We now have materials we can put on roofs that send heat to deep space. Wow. That's pretty great. So we could be using that in places where the heat you know, it's high and we could have cooling effects at night and during the day. That's incredible. We also have solar is coming to be the cost of cardboard, really. I mean, it's quite amazing. We're seeing some places where solar energy can be installed and the contracts are coming in at, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour. So this is cheaper than natural gas. It's cheaper than wind. It's cheap. And it's because of scaling. So I think for cities, let's design how we can renewable power city. That's not a crazy idea at all. In fact, there are cities that we're part of and thinking through of how to, that are going to be 100% renewably powered. So it's going to be hydrogen, it's going to be wind, it's going to be solar. But uh, I can even imagine us using natural gas as the transition to the hydrogen economy, uh, where we actually capture the carbon use hydrogen for energy, that's called blue hydrogen, as part of the transition, but use the carbon as an asset and use it for what we call durable carbon. So don't release it to the atmosphere, that's a toxin, right? But use it for durable carbon. So graphene, uh, you know, new kinds of concrete, we're looking at all kinds of things we can do with it, but don't let it go fugitive. Don't let it be plastic in the ocean. That's a durable bit of carbon. Don't let it go to the atmosphere. That's that's you know atmospheric fugitive uh, fugitive carbon because those are that the design is just wrong. Nature doesn't do that. So that's how I see the cities. So it's really they're organisms, and there's something lived and something dreamed, as Claude Larry Strauss used to say. They're both a natural object and a object to be cultivated. So gardens need gardeners. Cities need citizens. It's a beautiful idea. And your ideas have been taken up around the world uh, and strongly in China. I'd love to hear about some of the, um, you're talking about cities you, you're you working on, um, you know, some of the challenges that were faced, you know, do we need to have more public partner, public private partnerships to mm-hmm. accelerate change? You know, just what are, what have you found is working well? so that we can adapt it everywhere. Well, your point's well taken. I think co-creativity is a really critical part of this, that we have to all work together. And it doesn't mean we all have to become interdisciplinarians. When I was the dean at the University of Virginia School of Architecture, when I started way back, I took a five-year term there just to spread the word. And the faculty said, well, listen, you're an interdisciplinarian and you're tenured and you come here from New York City and you're for five you're gonna give us five years of your time but you're tenured you can stay forever if you want but you're gonna do five years and and so how do we as faculty get promoted to professors if we need to be peer reviewed and we don't have a specialty because you could never be peer reviewed because you're doing so many different things. So are you telling us that we need to tell our students they have to learn zoology because you start designing projects by wondering what birds are flying overhead or what benthic invertebrates are doing here or what the history of the biodiversity is here and from there. So do they have to all learn zoology to be an architect or something? I said, no, no, not at all. We don't need to be all interdisciplinarians. What we need is to become multidisciplinarians and we need to know that we need a zoologist that's what we need to know. 
is that we need to know somebody who understands that in order to do great work. So it's really more about multidisciplinary. That's one thing. The other is, I think when a lot of these things are imposed from one project, it was not good at all because it just got it just got you know put in place by people who just scrambled and did it their way, and it wasn't it wasn't engaging with people. So that that's a critical thing. Make sure you're communicating well and everybody gets to participate. That's very important. And uh, so and these things are hard to do. So you you have to uh, be persistent. And I think beauty is a key part of it because we need to get people excited and stay that way. So the city work we're doing now is we're really involved in implementation because that's the other thing. People can say, that's a great theory, but what do I do now? So we're very involved in execution. We have purchasing guidelines and product protocols and frameworks for these different kinds of activities. And because I see policy as being critical, and that comes from these kinds of new standards we've created. Like Cradle to Cradle is a product standard, but the standard is a is not a it's not a public thing. Standard is an industry thing. They're vol it's voluntary, yeah. And then that can be seen by the policymakers and say, "Wow, if they can make a fabric so clean you could eat it, and the water coming out of the textile mill is drinking water, wow." Well, then they can look at that and say, "You know, we should make that a policy." because it exists, therefore it is possible. Okay? So that moves us toward policy. But where the rubber meets the road is actually purchasers. So I like to see policies turn into purchasers. So, you know, how, how do I get that? How do we do it? How do we execute it? How do we move forward? Because you haven't been idling, but a lot of us have been idling. And so we finally have the goals or the targets, but how do we, we just have to skip a lot of that to make not even prototypes, just actualization. So how the population has grown since 2002 and Cradle to Cradle came out, you know, how, how do we overcome the acceleration problem? The acceleration, if you look at population, for example, there was a formula that was simple, simplistic, but simple in the early days of sustainability discussions known as IPAT. And it was I equals PAT. Impact equals population times affluence times technology. So you can realize that the I, if the population goes up, increases. If the affluence goes up, more people getting more things, it goes up. And, and then you have technology, which is obviously a variable too. What does that mean? Well, so, but isn't it interesting that when you say environmental impact, it typically is perceived as it's a negative thing that we have to live with. The environmental impact statement, it's like, where's my damage? How much is it there? And how can I live with it? You know? But environmental impact is always as a negative, typically. And then social impact, is often seen as positive. They do, oh, well, we, you know, it's better for everybody, but we can't afford it. Or environmental impact, sorry, we got to destroy the place because we can't afford it otherwise. That's the only way to make money, that kind of thing. So, so the point here would be, if the population is going to go up and there are going to be more people having more things, that's why we created circular economy. Because what we're talking about here is not natural capital, because I have an issue with that. If you look at the world as natural capital, then you see it all there for our use and all has value and we can go get it and it's valuable and we take it, whatever. But what I see there are sources from nature and that what we want to do is bring them into our systems of production and design and convert them into resources. So I don't like it when people use the word natural resources. I say natural sources. And we want to convert them into resources. Welcome to the circular economy. Because we just doubled their quantification by using them again, once, twice, three times, four times. See? So that's why we created the circular economy based on cradle and cradle. So you have regenerative materials in the biosphere circulating. And they can grow. And soil is decruing. And we have to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And nature-based solutions are ideal. Regenerative agriculture, things of all kinds, absolutely. It, but I don't know if it's enough 
to get the carbon levels to the right level. We're actually going to have to do other forms of carbon removal to to make up for what we've done up there. We've because we've been using fossil fuels as the the power of the circular economy. That people in circular will say, "Oh, I'm better for the environment because I reduce my emissions." Well, that's nice, but you're still using carbon as an energy source. See, for me, we created something with for the G20 called the circular carbon economy, which goes with the circular economy. And the reason is we look at carbon is because carbon is not the enemy. I hate it when children think that carbon is bad, and then they go to school and learn out that learn that they are carbon. Oh no. And their parents are telling them their goal is net zero. Oh, that's so depressing. Because you tell the kid, my goal is nothing, and you're making my life miserable because I have to feed and clothe you. I mean, what a sad story that is. I mean, carbon is a fabulous thing. We are carbon. And then if you just say, I'm going to reduce this by 20% by three years or something, what you're telling us is what you're not going to do. Well, that's interesting. But if you think about that, if you told a taxi driver, quick, I'm not going to the airport. I mean, it's information, but it's not that useful, really. So what we want to know is, what are you going to do? So what does 100% fabulous look like? So we put these together in a graph where we say, these are things we're going to stop doing, these are things we're going to do more of. We put it together. We, you know. So that we created a protocol for that, which is pretty exciting. So we inventory, assess, optimize. So I think that's the kind of thing that needs to happen now because net zero is a noble goal, but it means it was something wrong and we want to be less bad. And so to your question, I think for everybody who wants to know what to do, you have the same question that Aristotle had of Plato. Plato was focusing on human values, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the right, the wrong, the moral, the immoral, ethical, unethical, that. Human values. So we go from human values to principles. What are the principles involved in those decisions? And that's why I wrote the Hanover Principles in 1991. Design principles for sustainability. I still use them. There are principles. They're, they're like the fulcrum that we use for all our levers of change. You need something that doesn't move if you're going to move everything. Something that doesn't move. These are what we believe in. And then we go to visions, and that's my job. I'm a professional visionary, really. Okay. And then we go to goals, like a city that powers itself, feeds itself. And then we go to strategies. So how am I going to do that? Then we go to tactics, like what can I do right away? And then we go metrics, what am I measuring to understand progress? And then I show the value, which is the number. Right? That's where I show the value. Like this was worth doing because it makes us much money or does this or that. But you'll notice that it starts with a different question than what is my number? And then I benchmark it against what's going on in the world. And I try and do less. Well, that's not that exciting, really, because your goal, you can't get to your values from value. You can't get to what you believe in from a number, but you can get to a number from what you believe in. Okay? So start with what you believe in. Start with the right and the wrong and the good and the bad, and then move to the less and the more. Because less bad, by definition, is bad, just less so. So it's not good, but it's important to do. Please, everybody, be less bad. I'm not saying don't be less bad. I'm just saying go have some fun. Get out there and do something more good. See? But it has to be principled. So that's how I would suggest people. Take it in and let it come from behind the mind. Do the right thing and then do it perfectly. Because if you're doing the wrong thing perfectly, you become perfectly wrong. You touched on a lot principles and values. How do you see us going forward and changing or maybe evolving people's principles and values to fit this sort of vision? Well, the idea of minimization, which is such a central part of eco-efficiency and zero, zero goals, is minimizing. So I think when people think about what it means to minimize all the time, it gets kind of depressing. So if you think about even fractal mathematics, it's about growth. It's not about subtraction. 
It's about form and beauty and growth. Amazing. With income from outside the system, in this case, solar energy. So, uh, so I think for our cultures, if we can start to understand that there is an abundance, if we can reuse everything, there is an abundance if we treat it with grace, dignity, and, and systems like this, celebrating growth, well, then we can celebrate each other. At that point, perhaps commerce itself could be shifted from one of greed and limits. So the question of modern business is often, how much can I get for how little I give? Cheap, I want it cheaper and I want more, right? So how much can I get for how little I give? We all compete for that. But then the question I'd like to ask is, how much can we give for all that we get? So it's about actually generosity and abundance, not limits and greed. And when you think that way and you do that, you get growth. So instead of a triple bottom line that a lot of people use in eco-efficiency, and say it's bottom line, but that means there's profit in the business and there's something left over for society and there's something left over, you didn't destroy the whole environment, whatever, but it's just economics. And triple bottom line, it's what managers do. Manage it to profit. What executives do, we call the triple top line. So executive's job is to create revenue for the managers to manage and leave some profit. But the first job is to create the revenue and you manage it. So, so I think we get people to realize there's revenue generation going on here. This isn't just about being mean and sharing some little thing that's disparaging. It's more about how do we create this world that we can share because it's a human right and it's much more beautiful. So it's dreamy, sure. It is, it has to be. But like I like to say, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. <laughs> you know, oh, it's yeah. it's so true. And when you think about the really, you know, uh, people who have done really amazing things in the world, it's because they've tapped into this, um, like this unlimited well of like human creativity, right? And right. what your vision seems to say that, like a lot of us maybe people like they put away their impulses like oh I'm not an artist I, I just have to do a job and I just have to do it and that's where you get this kind of same thinking that doesn't evolve but when you people feel empowered to be you know unlock their creative capacity and it becomes joy like what you see in children um, and then also like you say people love something free <laughs> if you can see it like free it's free it's abundant it's you're giving something but it's it, it's just this free so it's really worth any kind of you wouldn't call it sacrifice but any kind of change in behavior because it's uh it promises so much and it is fulfilling in so many ways and it does come back to the fact that nature has a really tough time being ugly you know nature is inherently beautiful if you take a child and you go to a beach covered with pebbles they all become Andy Goldsworth. I did. I mean, just you immediately get down on your knees and you start selecting. This is what we do. We start picking which rocks we like, what color, what shape, round, soft, you know, you're on a beach. And a little kid, you put them in your pocket. I used to come home, my mother would always say, What have you got in your pockets? You know, seashells and rocks and whatever I've been collecting. But uh, but if you go to a gravel quarry with crushed gravel, you don't get down on your knees, they'd be torn to shreds. And you don't watch children sitting there playing with little sharp objects that have been crushed by big heavy instruments. It's not the same thing. And there is no ugly pebble on a natural beach. They just aren't. So I love that part about nature. So I, I like to focus on beauty because if we get that right, it's a good start, you're close. And you really worked on so many amazing projects and really for a, a number of companies and also, uh, you know, um, you know, with countries as well. Um, but one thing that I think concerns a lot of people is uh, greenwashing. Uh, yeah. You know, how, how can you tell the good players are those who are just like doing some creative accountancy? So you've seen it from the inside, uh, you know, some projects that are really like this is a philosophy that's been taken on board by the companies, this is what they're doing. And, and they're really, as just maybe not minimize, but they're really taking this very seriously, the circular economy. Yeah. 
Well, greenwashing is a, is a concern, but if the instincts are to move in these directions, we need to encourage that. If people are making promises they can't truly engage on an intentional level, then that's unfortunate. So it is a concern. Uh, but I think believing in something is also part of the responsibility of the believer to sift through these things. So there is a lot of, oh, there are a lot of people saying I'm green because they do something less badly. So for me, it's not green yet. It's still less red. You know, it's, it's still less bad. It's not really good yet. So it isn't really fabulous. But that just means there's an opportunity to keep going and and to share information and help each other. Because in the end, I think that what we're dealing with now is the recognition that the world has a very serious issue, saying climate, that's very clear now, I think, for any thinking person. So, okay, so how can we help each other? The question is no longer what's wrong with the way you're doing it. The real question now is how can I help you? That's the question we need now, not what's wrong with the way you're doing it. It's fine to ask that question, but it's really important to say, how can I help you? And how to prioritize the projects you were saying before about some of your current projects. And I just want to put out there some of the statistics, not focusing on the negatives, but some of the things that we really need to work on, like the 21 billion tons of textiles sent to landfills, 70 million pairs of sneakers are made every day. And how, how we, we can't recycle these. The single use plastic, which is the 95% of plastic is single use now. So how do you prioritize which areas? And you, I know you have some exciting projects on the pipeline. I love, love, see, the great thing about being a designer is you got to, you know, celebrate every day. I'm designing shoes right now. Yeah. And I'm real excited about it. So uh, it's not public yet, but they're really cool. And they will be the most uh, exquisite to me expression of what I'm thinking, because that's my job. So I am designing shoes, but they will be truly all these things we want them to be, the viability, including all the logistics systems that go with it. So they don't just go out there and turn into junk. So because even people making shoes out of recyclants and various things, then what? You know, it's like if I turn an old fish net into a pair of sneakers, well, that's nice. but. I had a piece of junk fishnet. Now I have a piece of junk sneakers. So the real question is what's next? What's next for the sneakers? And then how do I put them into a system that gives them a next use? And it's not next life. I think a lot of people use these terms like I'm designing for end of life. It makes me so sad because these are my inanimate objects. They're not alive. So we have this mental image of products going to Landfills as graves, and we call it cradle grave, and then crematoria for incinerators. And we not, we should talk about these objects are designed for use, right? We call them products of service. It's a product of service. We want to use them. That's the technosphere. Objects of human intention and use. And then we want that to be circular, right? So we really want to be designing for end of use. Well, it's Wonderful thing, because if you ask that question, and I do this with buildings, I design office buildings to be convertible to housing, just like that. Why? Because at the end of use, as an office building, why would I have to tear it down? We always need housing. So, poof, it's all proportioned properly. The windows are right. Elevators in the right place. It comes housing. I've had this happen in my buildings. I'm so excited. So, we're designing it for next use. Welcome to the circular economy. So it's not end of life. And then certain things we design, like the packaging we're doing now, we're really focused on compostable packaging for anything that might go fugitive. Because if it's going to end up blowing away in the wind, let's make sure that at least it turns into soil safely. And it goes back to hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, not microplastics, not nanoparticles of plastic, all that kind of stuff, but all the way back. Elemental hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, just like nature. So that nature can absorb it with grace and dignity. 
So that will be about, I would say, half the packaging in the world as soon as we can. I'm going to step in for a moment and discuss what Mr. McDonough has touched on so far. My name is Andrew Medlin, and I am the associate podcast producer for this episode. Mr. McDonough has mentioned microplastics. An alarming study out of the Netherlands has found microplastics in the blood of 17 out of 22 healthy adults. These particles, called phthalates, are entering our cells and conducting toxicological damage we don't yet understand. Roughly half of the world's plastics are in the form of packaging alone. Mr. McDonough has outlined his project for a sustainable, biodegradable substitute for this half. More information. The circular economy is the model of production and consumption based off of the idea of infinite resources through the creation of an open loop rather than a closed loop system. Our current system is a closed loop based off of the ideas of take, make, waste. There's a clear distinction between the circular economy and recycling because the current recycling system still shows a distinct lowering of quality of the goods we make with every so-called reuse and recycle. I would highly recommend Mr. McDonough's book, Cradle to Cradle. This work discusses this very issue as a cradle-to-grave idea rather than the constant repurposing of a cradle-to-cradle model in the circular economy. The production of a good, and when it's time comes, being able to create an equally durable and perhaps even higher quality good. And now let's get back to the episode. And we're, right now we're designing a hotel. We're designing a museum in India, a development in Montana. We just finished a factory, renewably powered factory design. We're an aircraft company. There's a lot. Now. We just finished a university that teaches cradle to cradle and circular economy. It's in Bogota, and there are 18,000 students. So it's for small and medium enterprises, entrepreneurs, to go this way. It was developed by local tradespeople two decades ago, and then they brought us in, and now we've added this to the curriculum. And we designed a building, so it's self-similar. It's all ventilated with natural air drawn by solar energy through the building quietly. It's an exquisite climate there. I mean, you don't need air conditioning in Bogota. You don't need anything in Bogota. It's just like perfect. It's very easy to do. Very nice. It's very beautiful how you're able to work on the micro to the macro. From sachets, you were saying, to these enormous, even you think about huge buildings, complexes, cities, and then to the very basic, tiniest packaging of the sachet that could be compostable and not have to clog our landfills. It's really that principle of beauty. It's all one thing. Has there been a fundamental change in the cradle cradle model since the book's publishing in 2002 compared to your work now? That's the fun part. Not really. I think the idea of biological and technical is fundamental. So that's not changing. We're evolving it into more and more dimensions and more and more applications, that kind of thing. But now, now you know, it became circular economy and it becomes circular economy and so on. But no, that's a fundamental. The idea of a product as a service, what you really want is the service of a carpet, not the ownership of molecules. So wouldn't it be great if we could store all our raw materials on our customers' floors? Oh, and use renewable energy to get it back and then reform the materials so they can go back to become carpet again, see? So all of a sudden you realize waste equals food and it's the product as a service model. So like when Philips adopts it, which is really exciting, when we talk, we work with them a lot. And they, you know, they're leasing the light now, not selling you the indium and the gallium and the aluminum fixture. Because right back, this is their raw material. And these are uh, rare earths and things like that that are not meant to be thrown into a landfill because you finish with light fixture. You know? And then when you look at even fluorescent lights and things like that, they might contain mercury. Oh my goodness, mercury is nasty. So the design of things that are safe and healthy is really important too. So, so I think the fundamentals are incredibly critical and it's, it holds, it really does. We have a lot more subtle examples and a lot more experience about elements of it, but finally it's a, a fulcrum. It really is. The, a famous newspaper misquoted Archimedes recently and said that he said, give me uh, a lever and a place to stand 
and I could raise the earth, right? What did they forget? The fulcrum. You have to have a thing that doesn't move in order to move anything. Think about that. You can poke the earth with a stick. You could push it off a cliff, but you can't raise it unless you have something that doesn't move and you put your lever there. So all the levers we need to bring to the world to adapt it to our purposes, um, they, they need a fulcrum to lean on. They need something fundamental that is what we believe and what is meaningful and what gives our children hope. They don't need to worry about supervising the adults. We can get back to being giving them adult supervision, but they don't have to supervise us because we're not trash the joint. Right now, we need child supervision of adults. So think of it that way. Let your children supervise you and give them a better plan. I was wondering, um, you know, in terms of adaptation, or I wonder, I was wondering how you apply your design thinking when you have a, a new project. Say you have a you have a land where you can designing a, a city or designing, a, you know, a campus or a large building. I'm really thinking about in terms of our future cities. What is the design thinking going into doing a new development or a new city, as opposed to adapting some of our older cities? Are there benefits to maybe scaling back to some of the, the our older you know, our older cities that were kind of more compact, um, but how, how does it diverge and, and what are the challenges of each? Well, it's always nice to celebrate our history. So working with existing things, infrastructure, otherwise, is always a good place to start. It's just like starting with nature is a good place to start because it exists, you know, and, and often it's got a lot of embodied benefits to make things more interesting. There's a city in Saudi Arabia called Jeddah, which is you know important city. It's really a gateway to Mecca and Medina for a lot of people. And but Jeddah has fascinating old city. It's worth every seeing because they built their houses and they get up to like seven stories, maybe eight if they're squishing it up there. But that you could tell the family that built the first floor puts in walls they can hold seven generations of their family over their heads or six. These are seven generation buildings. It's amazing. So the people who build the first part of the building are building it to receive another floor, which will receive another floor, which will receive another floor as the family goes through time. And the family is actually named after the building. And once they get to the top, the family has to move to another building as it grows. And they have to change their name the name of the new building. It's amazing. So it's actually seven-generation design. So that kind of thing is quite astonishing. But uh, if you look at the cities of the past with their streets and, and public spaces, most of the time, they really understood the laws of nature. They knew where the wind was. They knew where the sun was. They knew where the water was. You know, And they had to work with fundamentals. So they have good bones, you know, good shade patterns, good good flow of all kinds of things, naturally. Now, in modern life, we have other expectations, cities and so on. So, but we could also accept them as being similar in the sense that they could be renewably powered, that we can be designing so we have densities, so people are within five to 10 minutes of all the services they need. So it's really an aggregation of villages uh, that you can get around without a vehicle if you want to. So the more advanced things are are really evolving around pedestrian uh, enjoyment. And, and you can have your life part of a, a living organism. And then for mobility, it can become clean and quiet. And you don't need to own a car. You just need the services of a wheeled vehicle. You know, now we know about that. It's, that's the product as a service. That's, that's cars on demand, whether it's autonomous or or shared vehicles driven by someone who needs a living, that kind of thing, like Uber or a taxi. So I don't think people have the same need to own a car that we used to think we did. But part of that was the urban design. If most of the urban design in America, you couldn't get around without a car. So we design into our systems the things that we then have to rely on. So if you rely on natural energy flows, you're ahead of the game because you're naturally ventilated and so on. 
and to get the sun in the right place. So I think that's an important part of the future cities is they know where the sun is, they know where the wind is. But guess what? That's the same as ancient cities. So so really it's it's learning from our experience and our cultures and uh, enjoying the prospect of removing some things and taking taking the idea less is more that's in modern architecture and design is often about efficiency. Uh, it can relate obviously to form, but there's a book I'm reading right now that's called Subtract and it's about subtraction is an action. So you can have less of something because you don't pay attention to it or you care about it less. You don't put time into it or whatever, or you need less of something. But the idea of actually actively subtracting something is an action. And from an urban design perspective, fascinating. So one of the examples in this book I thought was very telling was the Embarcadero Freeway of San Francisco. Anybody who's been in San Francisco who's younger does not realize that there was a big superhighway along the shore of San Francisco where all the piers are. Giant, the Embarcadero Freeway. And People trying to get rid of it for a long time, activists. And, you know, and they said, no, we have it for the cars and it's how we get around. And then all of a sudden they had an earthquake and the earthquake took it down. And the question was, do we rebuild it or do you get rid of it? And they got rid of it. And now if you go to San Francisco, the city is so much better for being open to its water. And his peers and the boats and the fish and the, it's beautiful, but it was subtraction. It was something removed, not just less. It wasn't two lane highway instead of four lane highway, no highway. So, uh, so I think for some of the things we've done in since cities were first created in a way that was effective for a new another era like pedestrians and so on. Um, that's good. And I think removing a lot of things from the 50s and 60s and 70s and a lot of urban renewal, oof, you know, we could do that. We come back in and try and stitch things back together. But the new cities will be based on the joy of being a family in a place with places for your children to meet other children and where you can get the things you need while you get a little exercise and that kind of thing. So it's not that complicated really. It's not it's not complicated for you who has given it much thought, but it seems like we 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 move very slowly sometimes. And talking about this um, idea of the action of subtraction. Well, one thing that I think troubles uh, so many of us, it's its all of this packaging, it's all the unnecessary packaging we still haven't been able to design out of our systems. You have, we need that vast change. Oh, I haven't, I'm working on it. You've been able to, to bring to market, let's say. Yeah. So so how do we do that? Like I'm thinking about how we, our consumer habits and our shopping and just the food, just these basic things. And how do you convince people that, how can we move more towards like um, a collective cooperative idea so that the convenience that people don't want to give up can be replaced for a different convenience if, if we're kind of working together and, you know, how do you convince people of that, I guess? Well, I think that the, you have to make it more attractive and more affordable. These are pretty basic. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the area of packaging, we're working with some companies on reusable packaging right now. And it's quite elegant because we can pre-fill it and we can fill it at stations. We can do all kinds of things. And we can use packaging that is reusable. And we're developing systems now for cleaning and for, for identifying things. We have new RFID tags that are really inexpensive and safe, powered by your phone. Amazing. So those that way we can keep track of things, which is something new. And because the previous RFID tags were expensive and some were even radioactive. So whoops so uh forget that and so there's that kind of thing coming so you can be part of that and enjoy it on the single-use packaging i think for those people in need 
who can only afford a single use. You know, uh, they don't have a shelf. They don't have money to invest a box of soap. Uh, it's, you know, day to day. That's where these, like, sachets will come in. So it's single dose and it's affordable and it's safe. And I see them recycled as paper. So we do recycle paper. So this is obvious. We have a recycling system for paper. And nature has a recycling system for leaves and flower blossoms and banana peels. So start there and see how we can do. And um, I think that the, the it's it does come down to design. It really does. What is our intention? The design is intention. And if we say the world's falling apart and the, and the whole planet is under human management now, all the large mammals are under human management. So, you know, where's the place in this? So if we say it's not our plan to destroy the planet, well, it's become part of our de facto plan. It's the thing that's happening because we have no other plan. So we need a new plan. So I think getting people excited about having examples they can afford and that's convenient and has higher quality is the key. Otherwise, you're pushing against all these fundamentals and even changing the concept of consumption itself. So you cannot consume a television set. Right? So we call those products a service. So we celebrate the service. So we should design television sets to be all taken apart, designed for disassembly, and become new things. So it just means we design them differently. We design them for disassembly as well as assembly. It's not that complicated. Sometimes, you know, I, one of my favorites is a glue that comes apart at a high temperature. So you just take the thing you glue together and it will never see these temperatures and ambient conditions. And you put it in an oven, boop, falls apart. So you don't have to get your screwdriver out. You just bake it and watch it, poof. So what fun. There's so many new ways to go about this. So that are very cost-effective and highly profitable. We just have to find them all, celebrate them, and share them. So it's the, the incumbents need to be, you got to look for people that are friendly and willing in life. It's like I was in Iceland riding the horses. They're so beautiful, and they have this beautiful gait. And I asked them, how do you select the horses? Because they're wild in the hills. And when you bring them down, which ones do you select for riding? Which ones do you select for eating? And they said, well, we're looking for friendliness and willingness. What does that mean? Well, you're about to ride a wild animal. We don't break them. So you want a friendly one. So we look for horses that like people. That's sweet. And they're wonderful horses. They're very friendly. So you find a friendly one, of course. Why would you ride an angry wild animal that doesn't want you near it? Right. And then secondly, you want willingness. You want a horse that wants to run because that's why you're riding it. See, if it doesn't want to run, it's furniture, not a horse. So why would I want to just sit on the horse? I want to run, run together. And so that's why it's so much fun. You're riding a wild animal and they're enjoying it. And so, you know, that's amazing. So that's what you look for. I look for for people to work with. We say never work with the mules because they're positionally conservative and they don't want to do anything and uh, they don't want to move. And so never try to teach a mule how to play the violin. It just sounds terrible and the mules don't like it. So don't do that. And then get carrots bigger than sticks. But instead of hitting them with a stick, hit them with a carrot. Give them an opportunity it's too big to ignore. That'd be fun. And uh, but look for the thoroughbreds. Look for the ones that want to run. So that helps you in your work. Those are the people you hire, too, right? And so that's that's good. So that your life is more fun. And uh, and then the the joy of the creativity becomes something that is highly profitable. Where do you feel that your creative impulse came from? Um, who were important teachers to you? When did this start? I think it was my mother. She was, we were in Japan, a little kid. I remember I used to watch her do flower arranging, you know, because she was studying the Kibana. And I remember my mom, that's really beautiful. And, and I said, I like the way you have these flowers. 
and they're so beautiful together. She says, yes, now, stop. Now look again. And this time, I want you to look at the space between the flowers. This is what the Japanese call ma. It's the emptiness. Also has four. So it's all one thing. And so I think that whole idea that it's not just this, it's also that. It's very Asian, right? Yin yang, and so on. But I love that. So I look for what's not there as well as what's there. And so my job is to render the things that I want to see visible. So it's much like Michelangelo talking about carving a sculpture from marble. That he's just freeing the angel that's in there. Yeah, by removing stuff. <laughs> so that's what I like to do. I like to render the things I see visible. So then you can see it and you go, oh, that's possible because it exists. A lot of people talk about things that don't exist and then it's impossible. And they'll say, oh, it's impossible. And we'll say, no, no, it's not impossible. Just tell me you can't do it. And if you can't do it, can we get some help? Then we can do it. And if we can't do it, then it's impossible. But in the meantime, don't give up. You know, if you see it, render it visible and share it. Yeah. I've always liked that line about the, the it took away whatever was, was an angel or. Right, it wasn't <laughs> essential. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's uh, so beautiful. And so as you think about the future and education, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? I think I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and remember the world is better because you're here. And it reminds me of Steve Jobs. Somebody asked him, why would you want to put a camera in a telephone? Telephones are great, right? And we now have digital cameras. And they're great. They're small. They're really wonderful. Why would anyone ever need a a camera and their telephone. Now just think about modern life. Cameras and telephones, really? Right? Can you imagine not having a camera in your phone? Right? The camera in my telephone is better. I did photography major. I went to Yale and did photography. I, the cameras I have on my phone is mind-bogglingly good. Right? So anyway, his answer was very elegant. He said, the best camera in the world is the one you have with you. Bingo. My phone is also a flashlight. The best flashlight in the dark is the one you have with you, <laughs> right? So, wow. So I think the best, the best chance you have to change the world, you have it within you. You're carrying it with you. Use it. Exactly. We have to always be ready because you don't know when the good photographs are going to happen. And you don't know. Yeah. And that's why so many writers always have that notebook because they don't know when the good ideas are going to happen. The good idea doesn't like wake up at five and then stop at six. It's all right. the time. And if you want to get it executed, you got to get up and move around. Go get it done. And I believe you also have a PDF which just shows this is just a few, you've just mentioned a few of your ongoing projects, but you have a portfolio PDF that's constantly updated. That's exactly right. We call it Waging Peace Through Commerce by Design. And it's making the world better because we're here and using business is the fundamental tool that we use every day. It's the tool you have with you. It's in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've, you've really given us a, a Bible for sustainable thinking and circular economy. Thank you for your valuable contribution, your insights to circular economy, industrial ecology, buildings, cities, rethinking our current models from cradle to cradle so that we can have a green and fair future for everyone. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Thank you for the invitation. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Andrew Medlam with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Andrew Medlin. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. 
If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.